Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas, arts editor here at the TLS, and Michael Keynes, another editor, is here with me today. How are you doing, Michael? Hi, Lucy. I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. We should mention that um, Alex is... I'm always accusing you of gadding about, frankly, because she does. Yes. Where is Alex? Where is Alex this time? <laughs> we'll get her to answer that when she gets back, but it's quite a kind of... I don't know what the words... It's a very impressive gadding about, put it that way. And here we are, Michael, stuck at the microphone. The last time I was on this podcast, Alex was just back from the same literary festival I'd been to, but she'd managed to fit in another literary festival and she'd been chairing events at both festivals and then driven overnight to get home. Unbelievable. The life of a, of a literary woman. Amazing. I remember that one because I think you were talking about the Tour de France and I was really jealous because I wanted to talk about the Tour de France. You wanted to talk about the Tour de France. Yes, I think I remember that. That's almost the same situation, but a, a couple of goes ago, as it were. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How does she do it? I don't know. We'll ask her when she gets back. We'll ask her, yes. So while Alex is gadding about, we could perhaps read the TLS. Imagine that. That would be a thing. I would love to do that. I think it's a cracking issue this week. Well, it's got lots of things, hasn't it? It's got gene editing and then homo sapiens and how homo sapiens evolved and you know in fact Charles Foster's got quite an interesting line through the piece whereby homo sapiens kind of grows and starts doing interesting things and rather wonderful things and lives kind of you know in tune with nature and has culture and civilization and then we start going bad <laughs> and unfortunately we haven't we haven't pulled it back yet that's a very crude reworking of his very sophisticated piece what else uh, took your eye this week this is absolutely one of the reasons why I love well I think we're both very lucky to be working at the TLS that you could open this paper and find something that's both in depth about a subject we know nothing about and manages to explain it clearly for a total non-scientist like me that Charles Foster piece does sound fascinating because of course it's always this evolving story and if you're even going to get anywhere 
near understanding what the latest is. You need something like this, you know, some version of a book and somebody sensible, i.e. a PLS reviewer, kind of talking back to that book. So, you know, I think that's a great thing. But I also like that this week's issue in particular has that. We've got Craig Rain writing uh, in depth as well about Lucian Freud, uh, which I think is a great piece. A long-awaited summary of uh, three books that happen to have come along all about sort of vagrancy and vagabondage in 19th century literature. Yes. Obviously in particular in Britain, but it gives you all kinds of different perspectives on that. And then something that really, I think, caught my eye, and I'm very glad that we have published, is Lindsay Hilsom writing about the war in Ukraine and how it's as much, there's a cultural matter going on. I shouldn't say as much, but there is a cultural conflict going on, as well as a territorial conflict. Mm, at the same time, yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah and yeah. there's some really extraordinary details in that. It opens with Lindsay Hilsom writing about a church in Kherson where the soldiers basically forced them to relinquish relics that have been there for 200 years, the bones of Prince Grigori Potemkin. And that kind of story is obviously sort of devastating in its own way, isn't it? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but we've got to hear it. You've got to hear about it. It's a really important story to tell. And there's lots of other things as well, from the very serious to uh, this book called Am I Normal? Readers, have a look and <laughs> find out whether you are or not it was interesting what you're saying about the piece about the vagrancy and the, the vagabonds and the tramps because you when I started reading it I was thinking oh well maybe it will be kind of quite a jolly you know Charlie Chaplin-esque but of course it's not jolly at all it's more like it's a kind of social history of poverty almost isn't it yes I think that's exactly it you know and how there is a great there was a great body of literature being published at the time by people who genuinely experienced homelessness and living absolutely you know rock bottom or nothing there's a terrific book by Jack London about trying to much later on and it's about the east end of London and how he tries to blend in as a kind of piece of you know long-form journalism as it were oh, and he tries yeah. to write about the life of the people in the east end and all these people of malnutrition and no education and desperately trying to make their way but that's at the end of the 19th century and this is this whole body of work before that so you know, it's it's an eye-opening piece that I, you know, I don't think I've seen these books really covered like this elsewhere. Mm. We should stop going on about how brilliant we are because it makes yeah, us, fair know, enough, sad. fair enough. We didn't write any of these pieces ourselves. <laughs> no, we absolutely didn't. It has to be said. It is reflecting <laughs> glory, but yes, I take your point. <laughs> I did see one other thing this week about what writers do when they're not writing. It was in Lit Hub, a writer called Maurice Meyer or Meijer. And when she's not writing, she trains to be a bullfighter. But she is a, as she explained, she's a kind of vegan animal activist. She's never going to fight a bull. You know, she finds <laughs> the idea of it completely abhorrent. But she really does train. She trains, I think she's saying she trains with her twin sister. And she's got, she got a couple of teachers, an amateur torero from Spain, a former bandier, I can't say it, banderiero. I'm really sorry. I really can't say it. So they really are training. And she says, it's a brilliant line. She says, I was shocked to discover we'd be devoting most of our time not to learning to think like a torero, but to think like a bull. So she's, she spends her time kind of being a bull. And she can decide whether to be a good bull or a bad bull and whether to charge, you know, or not to charge. It sounds just absolutely brilliant. And then, and then it makes you think, oh, great, that would be a great thing to do. Forget about the writing. Let's yeah. just train to be a bull in a bullfight. That's fantastic. Do you know, I was listening to it. There's a nice podcast which talks about academic books. And there was a nice short one about that Montaigne line about when I play with my cat, mm. 
do you know this is very famous isn't it when i play with my cat who knows if i am playing with her or is she more playing with me yeah i think that's roughly how it goes isn't it and i feel like learning the point of view of an animal even one much easier to predict than a cat <laughs> is probably quite an extraordinary experience in itself and actually does need training you know your instincts might go one way but actually if you're going to think like a badly behaved bull let's say that actually needs work and experience yes also it just sounds like fun doesn't it that sounds like fun yeah as long as she's never going to actually get in the ring and as you say fight a bull no 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 she says absolutely not no she doesn't like it she says the milieu of bullfighting is overwhelmingly conservative patriarchal inclined to sneer at the anarchic communitarian ideals with which i most passionately identify but she kind of loves it as well. It's really, it's really interesting. I'm glad you brought that up, given that later on in this episode, we're going to be talking about an artist who could both paint animals with painstaking care and happily go out with a gun over her shoulder and kill them. That's a good point. That is what she was doing. I feel I need to retract what I just said. I said, forget about the writing. And I've remembered that we are a literary podcast about books and the TLS. So it didn't just take, take long, that one it? back. It didn't take long. <laughs> Let's take that back. Yeah, don't forget about the writing. And uh, also, you mentioned that there's another podcast. I don't think that's true. I think we're the only one. Oh, that's right. You must you must be mistaken about that. I think this can all be changed in the edit. There are no other podcasts. <laughs> anyway, also, if you do want to read all these wonderful pieces, do subscribe to TLS, and that, in fact, that is the way to be able to read them all. But before you do that, listen to this because coming up on this week's show, we're going to find out when a Roman emperor is not a Roman emperor. Mary Beard will help us to work it out. And the biggest show in Paris this year, a quietly trailblazing female artist who lived and worked on her own terms. But first... When is a Roman emperor not a Roman emperor? This is the question that readers of Mary Beard's blog, A Don's Life, will have been pondering recently. For as Mary reports, there is a supposed Roman emperor of the 3rd century CE, an emperor called Sponsian, who may or may not have existed. Now, Professor Beard, as classics editor of the TLS, joins us live in the studio to explain what the devil is going on. Thank you for joining us, Mary. First off, what's the story so far about Sponsian? How would you have summarised all that before this year, say? Well, Sponsian is a kind of the second most important thing about this story, because the first most important thing is a question of whether a group of Roman coins found in the 18th century are fakes or not. And there was a small hoard of them, gold, found in Romania, early 18th century, third century coins, heads of some known emperors, plus, and we'll come to him in a bit, the as yet unknown Sponsian, that were heralded, actually, in the 18th century as a great gold set of new finds of Roman coins. They didn't have much kind of time in the sun because... By the 19th century, um, they'd been split up in different European collections. But anyway, people said they were fakes. So they were put into store cupboards and forgotten about. What has recently happened is that they've been looked at again. And in looking at them again, the claim has been made that they are not fakes at all. They're real Roman coins. Now, it's a very, very tricky area. Roman fakes versus Roman authentic coinage is often very hard to tell apart. And there are arguments on both sides of this question that some of the coins from Romania ended up in Glasgow and those are the ones that have been most carefully looked at, but also some in Romania. 
And the new analysis has said, look, they've got signs that they've got wear on them, as if they were kind of clinked around in people's pockets for a bit, which isn't usually what happens with fakes. And there was also traces of earth, which looked as if they'd been kind of embedded for a long time in the soil, not just quickly buried and quickly, ha-ha, discovered. And those are good points. They don't, for me, outweigh the question of the fact that they've got more gold in than they should have, mm-hmm. that, that they don't obey the Roman gold standard. They are made with a mould, not with a stamped die, which is not usual for Roman coins. And the tail side of at least one is a complete mishmash, which looks as if it's been kind of pastiche of some much earlier coins. So I'm still thinking they're fakes. However, they might not be fakes. Right. So if they were real... What do they tell us? And can I say as a layperson, who the heck is sponsoring them? Well, that is the question, <laughs> yes. you see. If they're real, they've got some well-known Roman emperors on some of them. But they've also got a man with a deeply distinguished head who is named around the edge of the coin Sponsion, Sponsianus. Now, at this stage, the middle of the 3rd century CE, you don't get your head on a coin unless you're an emperor or an emperor's immediate family. So if they're real, they have given us another another Roman emperor that we didn't know about. Sponsion is not known, I can tell you, anywhere else. Now, this is where the media excitement has gone wild, mm. you know, because um, assuming that the scientific analysis is correct, next step is to say, blimey, we've got a new Roman emperor that nobody knew about. And it's been treated as if kind of we had a new British king, you know. From, <laughs> right, that just you know, popped up out yes, of nowhere. Yes, suddenly we yeah. didn't know that there'd already been a Charles III in the 18th century. Um, as if somehow history has been overturned and mm. we found a new emperor we didn't know anything about. Now, I think that... The fake, not fake issue is quite interesting and it's never as easy as people think to make a firm decision about that. But what kind of irritates me is the way the the new Roman emperor has been approached. Because at any point in Rome, but particularly in the 3rd century CE, there were any number of people who, in a period of civil wars, uncertainty about who was really on the throne, pretenders and usurpers and whatever. There were any number of people who said, oh, right, okay, I'm making a bid for power now. I'm the Roman emperor. And the first thing you do if you're making a bid for power as as a Roman emperor, first thing you do is you mint coins because you've got an army. And the one thing that any Roman emperor has to do is pay the troops. Right. So, you know, any jumped up pretender will make coins unless they're very stupid because they need cash to pay the army. Is it to fulfil two purposes? You've got to pay your armies, keep them loyal, but also it, it proclaims that you are the emperor. Yes. Yes, it does that. I mean, I suspect that it's paying the army that comes uppermost in these guys' minds, but it's coinage as now has that effect of displaying who the claimed ruler is. And it's quite clear, you said it's a very fraught area, this kind of evidence gathering, but to put this next to this kind of evidence for other emperors, 
this is a real outlier or would you, are there figures who even come close oh, to this? There's, there's lots of them and, we, and there's probably loads and loads we don't know about. I mean, mm-hmm. I've just been writing a book about the history of Roman emperors between the first emperor, Augustus or Julius Caesar, if you wanted to go back a bit, and this period. And if you say, well, OK, how many emperors are there between Augustus and, let's say, Alexander Severus, who died in 235. The answer is it depends who you count as an emperor. Mm-hmm. And some people are very much on the margins. Is the, the quote, usurper Clodius Albinus, is uh, 193, is he an emperor or is he an unsuccessful claimant to the mm-hmm. throne? And the likelihood is that, you know, we have some quite big problematic characters like Clovis Albinus and there are others. But the likelihood is there are all, all kinds of Johnny-come-latelys who at a certain point said, oh, I'm Emperor of Rome now and probably lasted a week or two. Right. It's pretty uh, messy. It's it's pretty messy. So you now, can't, you oh, can't put it on a tea towel and make children uh, um, memorise it. It's <laughs> not, that's right. Yeah. I'm not going to change my list of Roman emperors to put Sponsian in. So, okay. no, what it, would it take then to convince <laughs> you what more needs to turn up? You think, hang on, I need to reckon with this Sponsian figure. Uh, I can see, though, of course, this is a secondary issue, as you said. But if there was more, <laughs> what would that have to be for you, Mary? Well, you know, I, any other evidence about him <laughs> anything, at all would anything would, separate would, from would, some dodgy coins would, would do. And you know, there, I have to say, I do feel kind of just a little bit irritated because this does show you some interesting things. Actually, I mean, it illustrates brilliantly if it is not a fake. I still think it is, but if it's not a fake, it illustrates brilliantly that fluidity about the category of emperor. You know, it shows you, look, there are guys out there, you know, they might have been jolly important in the middle of the third century in Dacia, Mm -hmm. modern Romania, but we know nothing about them. They left no mark, but they are in some ways engaging with the Roman power structure. And to some extent, that's interesting. And you know, if there's a story here, it's about that sort of blurry margins between mm-hmm. what an emperor is and what isn't an emperor. And it's not to do with whether we've got someone to add to the list. And you know, like I said, any evidence, any evidence of his existence at all? Anything useful, you know, right. Would be yeah. the literary tradition around them, particularly of guys in Dacia, is not Great, but you know, perhaps an inscription, you know, maybe another coin from somewhere, but yeah. just something else. And I think it's a bit of a you know pity that the headlines have gone, you know, hook, line, and sinker for previously unknown Roman emperor discovered or previously fake emperor now discovered to be real because the whole category of what's a real emperor, what's a fake emperor, Mm. what's a pretender, that's what is so mixed up. And, you know, it isn't like the list of British kings and queens. And hence the very tricky title of your blog post, Mary, which is, I think I've quoted, haven't I? When is a Roman emperor not a Roman emperor? Well, it's more complex, (laughs) isn't it? I did think it would be... Nice just to say, look, there is a story. There is actually an interesting story here. I mean, it is, I think it's interesting that it is quite hard to to tell. And it's true in the case of coins. It's also true in the mm. case of sculpture. Mm. It isn't easy to say what a fake is or what a, you know, it's all kinds of variants, you know, what's a copy, what's a version of something. Well, perhaps we should veer on to thinking about evidence 
that's discussed in this week's TLS, because you've got this, ter- this is a slightly earlier period, isn't it? But this terrific review by Greg yeah. Wolf. Can you tell us a bit about yeah. that and why that is interesting and what that tells yeah. us about yeah. the ancient world? And, and I, I think this is, uh, you know, I don't mean to blow the trumpet of the TLS, but... I'm afraid we did that earlier on and then when we had to put a stop to ourselves. Didn't we? <laughs> right, so sorry. Go ahead. No, no, sorry. Go ahead. It's a real boastful bragging episode of the TLS podcast. I think one of the things, as a, as a kind of classicist with an eye on, you know, how you get people interested in the ancient world i'm really really concerned that people should actually see what professional ancient historians really invest in which is not fly-by-night emperors but it's how the ancient world works how the roman world Mm. works and what the kind of evidence is that gives you a window onto that and a lot of this evidence i think tends to get imprisoned in lecture rooms and seminar rooms or academic libraries. And I think it's quite a case for letting some of this free and letting people enjoy it, if you can. Mm. And a lot of that, a lot of what professional ancient historians get really excited about comes from documents inscribed on stone from the ancient Mm. world, both the Greek world and the Roman world and everything in between. And it's part of a very interesting culture of Greco-Roman antiquity that there was a kind of sense of what Greg Wolfe calls it, glashnost. There was Mm. a desire to show people, to be Mm. open about the documents you'd received, the laws you'd passed, the way you were negotiating with other people. And you did that before a, a kind of mass media age. You did that by, you know, for example... You have a a letter from the emperor that is sent to your city and you painstakingly inscribe that, chisel it out, its text, on a big stone and put it up in public. And in many ways, most of the really important recent new evidence, significant new evidence for the ancient world, hasn't come from gold coins in data, I'm afraid. It's come from people discovering this kind of document and mm-hmm. reading it. I mean, it's, it's tough to read, mm. uh, but you haven't got a translation. Right, yeah, there's <laughs> fantastic know. detail in, in this review alone, you know, just about what a painstaking task that is. Yeah. And what this is, is it's a letter which was sent from one community in what the Romans called Asia Minor, but modern Turkey, a city called Abdera, to the city of Tios in the second century BC. I think it's the second century BC. <laughs> this Wait, is... We're not in a position to call you we're on not that, arguing, I'm afraid. Yeah. Yes, it is. <laughs> I've checked. It is the second. I'm just thinking I don't want millions of letters. Yeah. Second, around 170 BC. And what has come up recently is 70 odd lines of a Greek text, which turns out, interestingly, it was dug up comes up in excavation and it turns out to fit with another 27 old lines that was found previously. Um, so they've got a hundred lines, they're voluble things, these, a hundred lines of a letter between the community of Abdera thanking the community of Teos for helping it. And what Wolf explains and what the book explains, it's by a Turkish scholar, Mustafa Adak, and the Oxford ancient historian Peter Toneman, who've gone through this inscription, translating it, which is damn hard, actually, but then working out what the importance is. And what the review and what the book makes clear is that 
we're in a world here where there's kind of big powers fighting it out. You know, Rome is on the ascendant, spreading its power into the eastern Mediterranean, where Teos and Abdera are. And there are big resistors to that you know, from further east. And their question is, and this is what the inscription answers, is what's it like when you're a little city caught in the middle of this? And how do you how do you deal with it? And it turns out that Abdera had actually been thrashed by the Romans because they hadn't provided the help that they should have provided at a certain moment. Mm-hmm. And eventually the Abderans get Rome to say that, sorry, Ab- you know, we shouldn't have done that, but they get no compensation. And they get helped out by the city, you know, down the road, or more than down the road, it's some way away, the city of Teos. And they, they're so grateful that they send a letter to Teos saying, thank you very much, that, you know, when we were pressured by the... the bit tactful about the Romans, right. actually, in this, <laughs> when we had our time of trouble, trouble. We had our time trouble. Trouble. Yeah. you were so grateful, and so every year we're going to give a sacrifice, you know, we're going to send an animal to be sacrificed in your town square, parading that at a mutual dependence yeah. that these cities have had. And they've had it way back, because it turns out, actually, that once upon a time, Abdera did the sort of same thing for Teos when it was in trouble, and that Abdera was partly dependent at a certain time on the foundation by Teos. So what Wolf is just in kind of opens up for us and what the book does is to say underneath the big stories that you read of you know, the Romans are here and they're you know they're defeating Mithridates here or whatever you know kind of the big geopolitics you know in a world which is actually made up of disparate little city-states there are people who are getting caught in the crossfire but also people who are they've got their own self-help mechanism. It's like networks independent of the Roman structure yeah. that that already existed, in fact, and yes. that can still operate. Yes, and so you're seeing what goes on underneath the story that you might read of the big players doing what they do, and you know this is the relentless rise of Rome, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I mean, I think we're getting better at seeing that there are victims in the in the relentless rise of Rome. We used to be told as if somehow you know we didn't kind of notice the people who were slaughtered in the process. I think people are much better at doing that now. But we're constantly on the lookout for kind of wondering what it's like to be at the next tier down and how you survive and what your self-help mechanisms are and what your view is and how you're positioning yourself in relation to Rome because you've always got one eye over the shoulder but you're dependent on your pre-existing mates who you'd been mates with long before the Romans showed up. I feel like this has been a kind of Trojan, cartoon Trojan horse conversation. We managed to sneak in a hoard of coins, the nature of all evidence, and two small cities <laughs> into what was going to be a talk about a fake Roman emperor. It's brilliant. We better finish there. Thank you so much for joining us, Mary. Thank you. Still to come on the show, Rosa Bonheur, a leading artist of her day who chose not to be led to the altar like a ewe to be sacrificed. And if you have enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas. Now, one of the biggest exhibitions in Paris this year at the Musée d'Orsay is about a highly successful female artist celebrated in her own day and the first to be awarded a Legion of Honour. She did it all on her own terms, in her own way, without fanfare. In fact, she wasn't very keen on the spotlight, it seems. And despite all this groundbreaking behaviour, we might not be that familiar with her name. We're talking about Rosa Bonheur. And we're very glad that Norma Clark, who travelled over to Paris and beyond to see the exhibitions, is with us today. Norma, thanks very much for coming on. Thank you for inviting me. It's a real pleasure. Before we start talking about Rosa Bonheur herself, can you tell us where you went? This is just to make everybody feel jealous. And I know I keep saying this, but most <laughs> jealous assignments are not like this. But <laughs> it is also a useful question because there are quite a few exhibitions, weren't there, at the same time, kind of spread around the place? There are. It's the 200th anniversary of Rosa Bonheur's birth in Bordeaux. And the exhibition began in Bordeaux and then moved up to the Musée d'Orsay in October this year. So that's the main one. And I have to say that being able to go to the press opening was a real privilege and pleasure because the way they do it in Paris is that the museum is just open. So I had the opportunity not only to go to this exhibition, but also just to wander about and look at 
the collection without there being crowds of people. And if you know that museum, you know that that is a real... It's not bad. It's not a bad collection, is what I'm going to say. It was just fantastic to just have it, as it were, almost to oneself. So that's the main bit. And then Rosa Bonheur, with her earnings from her first big hit, which was canvas called The Horse Fair in 1853, she was able to buy herself a small chateau down on the edges of the forest of Fontainebleau, near, quite near the chateau of Fontainebleau, nothing like the same size as that chateau, of course, but nonetheless a chateau with um, uh, seven and a half acres, I think, of land right on the edge of the forest, and, and she loved the forest. So if you go there, which it's now open, this is at um, a place called Tomery, and it's open as the it's now called the Chateau de Rosa Bonheur, and it's a museum you can visit. And you can see the way the forest is sort of virtually part of the chateau, part of the house. And so she and she would walk out there every morning. It was her habit to go and spend some time in the forest. And it's lovely to be able to go there and see it. And I'll talk a bit more about that maybe later, the interior of this, this chateau. But they have an exhibition on and also there's a small exhibition at the Chateau de Fontainebleau itself because they were given quite a lot of her works after she died and they're showing some of that obviously because it's the anniversary of her birth. Mm -hmm. There is a real sense of a celebration of her both locally in that region in the forest and also in Paris and um, not before time really either I'd say. Mm. Norma you mentioned Bordeaux there I mean among other enviable places can you tell us a bit about her early life and how she came to be an artist and a very particular field? Yeah, she comes from, um, you know, it's a family of artists. Her father was an artist, a successful landscape, mostly artist, but also other kinds of artwork. And she's in Bordeaux until she's about six, but then they move up to Paris. So Bordeaux itself doesn't feature very much in her early life. She's um, keen on drawing and painting from a, she seems like one of those naturals you know she's you know yeah. put a pencil in her hand at the age of two and she's producing brilliant pictures of the family cat you know it's that yeah. kind of story and her father was a tremendous enthusiast for her to be an artist so there's nothing of that more familiar story of father saying no or you know mother saying no she's inside a world of art production and she's very um, happy inside it, very much welcomed inside it. And it's a happy childhood. And indeed, her sister and her brother also become quite successful artists, not in her league, but they show at the salon as she does. Right. A sort of black spot in all of that is her mother. Her mother, partly because the father isn't earning very much and because his art is perhaps more important than his earnings to him. The mother who comes from a, a slightly more genteel background is a slave, is a slave to the children and the household. And it appears that she was basically worn out by the life that they led. Four children, uh, not much money, you know, not enough servant help and all, all the rest of it and died at the age of 36 and is buried in a pauper's grave 
And I do think that that had a tremendous impact on the way that Rosa Bonner saw a woman's life. Yes, because you say that quote, that um, amazing quote that she says that she doesn't want to get married because she doesn't want to be led like a you to the sacrifice. Do you think that's partly where it's coming from? I do think that. I do think the word sacrifice is very important there. I think she felt that her mother was sacrificed to that particular kind of female life. And she was absolutely determined that that wasn't going to happen to her. So, I mean, I think those are the sort of formative influences that, you know, the father's devotion to art and his encouragement of her um, and that vision of what happened to her mother, who, you know, who was not an artist. Mm. And I think the other thing I would, I would also say in terms of early formative experiences is her father's following of the San Simonians in the 1830s, uh, which is a feminist movement and also a, a sort of communal movement. So very concerned with people living not in isolated splendor, which is, if you think about the history of art, you know, and notions of genius, the idea of isolation and solitariness is very strong. And I don't think she had any of that. I think that what she took from her father's sansimonianism was both her feminism and her pleasure in community and living in a made community, the community that she made for herself, which is what she does later in her life. It's interesting as well that, I mean, given that background, that she could have really gone in any direction, but as you make very clear, she chose very early on to specialise in painting animals, yes. which now we, some people might see nowadays as quite old fashioned. And looking at some of the paintings as well, I wonder, you know, to what extent you think there's a, there's a degree of what we might now think of as kitsch. But then it was very, very highly regarded and respected. Yeah, no, sure. It's very hard, isn't it, to be a realistic artist, I think, or to look at artists that are working within the frame of realism when you know that at the same time, Impressionism is happening, as it were, mm. next door. So even though she's hugely popular, largely through the prints that are made of, of her paintings she's hugely popular and makes lots of money and is extremely well known and gets all these awards in her lifetime from the moment that she dies she you know, her reputation dies as well because the you know, the direction of art is completely away from the kind of art that she is doing she's got that amazing kind of pull it seemed to me that between a kind of rather traditional and and slightly old-fashioned type of work that I mean very very beautifully executed and this very modern radical way of living that but she managed to, to keep the two in harmony it seems like. That's an interesting way of thinking about it yes how radical is the way she's living um, she makes her own community which doesn't include a husband um, she lives with the great love of her life, Natalie Mikas, and her mother. And then later she persuades an American painter, Anna Klumpke, to be her permanent partner, as it were, in the household. How radical is that? One of the things that struck me that I think is so interesting about her is how she wants to downplay all the um, what we might think of as either radical or odd or eccentric or different or transgressive, mm. or whatever words we want to use about it. 
you know, things like the um, the wearing of trousers, which was such a such a theme in the 19th century, the sort of motif of you know, women who were being a bit unconventional and transgressive. You know, they wear trousers, they smoke cigarettes um, or whatever. She just wanted to downplay that all the time. She just wanted to say, no, no, it's I do it because it's practical. I don't do it. Mm. I'm making a statement. I'm not trying to be different or anything like that. Um, though, of course, we have to remember, and I was having to remind myself, that in France in the 1850s, there was actually a law against, you know, there were sumptuary laws, and she had to get permission to travel, when she was traveling, I think to the Pyrenees, she had to get permission to wear trousers and ride Did a she? horse. Yes, yeah, literally wow. a, piece paper, a piece of paper that said, I have got permission to do this. Yeah. Permission to wear trousers, granted. Yeah. We should yeah. all carry those at all times. Yeah. <laughs> and to ride the horse astride. Oh, I see, yes. I'm not sure if that was the reason she gave for needing to wear the trousers, it might have been. Mm. Um, but anyway, she and Natalie went off on one horse, you know, riding astride um, and having a good time in the, in the, yeah, the Pyrenees or the Auvergne, wherever it was, I can't remember. And when we talk about her relationship with animals, she really did love them, didn't she? You also quote that joke where she says that bulls are the only males she's interested in. <laughs> but you say that she wasn't she wasn't sentimental about them, but she sort of took them seriously as beings in their own right, not just sort of things to be used or decoration. Was that also unusual? I don't know enough about um, the history of other painters painting animals, to be honest. What is striking about her, I think, is that she's meticulous about getting the anatomy correct. She's hugely observant and, and hardworking in going to where she can sketch and watch the movement and get the picture right. And at the same time, so there's a sort of scientific element to it. You know, she studies the books on you know, musculature and bones and things. But at the same time, she's also investing the animal with some kind of personality feeling and of course that's that's the sort of thing that upsets a lot of people because they say you know that sort of anthropomorphism is just is just sentimentality or it's the kind of kitsch that Michael was talking about earlier. What's the best of the work for you Norma? I mean now as you've gone on the grand tour of uh, Bonaire places <laughs> did something strike you afresh as being really remarkable? Oh I, do, I think those big canvases the, the horse fair yeah yeah and Ploughing in the Nivernay, the one that she got the first prize for at the Salon, which is a canvas that shows you just a line of cattle coming across. They come sort of you know, a, a horizontal in the middle of the canvas with the workers kind of in the background pushing them on. I was very struck by how impressive that was to see it in the real rather than in reproduction. You know mm -hmm. how sometimes you, you see you're very familiar with the picture in reproduction and actually the actual one doesn't you know, kind of have, have much difference. Sure, this is yeah. it. There was a, the luminosity of the colour really came through and it was both moving and, um, and rather touching. The fact that she, she was choosing to depict scenes that no other French painters really, well, a few, but not many other French painters were, were choosing to depict. I mean, they weren't they weren't painting cattle. 
Mm-hmm. Cattle, you know, is not romantic, but it's all part of celebrating the production of you know, food and um, and the work that is going on in the countryside. So I like that very much. But I suppose, in a way, my favourite is the picture that the the Dorsey has at the in the opening when you go in, and which I talk about in my review, the the portrait of her by Edouard Dubouf, um, which she then she she got rid of the table that he had her standing next to and she paints in this lovely this lovely shaggy bull and I find that I just love the idea of it I love the symbolism of it I mean there she is she's standing there she's on the sort of cusp of a really big career and it's a very masculine world Um, if you look at the just outside the exhibition actually in the in the museum there's a painting by Fantin Latour of other painters and other kind of French um, bohemians, writers, and they're all wearing black suits. There are all these men in black suits with beards. And it's quite a striking visual image of what she's up against. And so there she is. She's cresting the wave and she is hitting um, the French artistic world. And she's got her hand resting on its neck, as it were, with her paintbrush in it. And I like the fact that it's a a portrait of her, but it's also partly by her. And the bit that's by her is the bull, not herself. I mean, she never, so far as I know, she never did a self-portrait. It's also, it just shows, or it seems to show, because I've mentioned a couple of kind of, you know, little jokes that she said. It's pretty bold and I think quite funny for him to go, okay, I've done a picture of you resting with your hand on a table and her to go, yeah, should we have a ball instead? Can I just put a ball in there? (laughs) I just love it. I absolutely love it. I just think it's very cheeky. And it is a sign, I think, of her personality, which um, seems to me, insofar as one can tell these things, it seems very good natured, very down to earth very sort of rooted in herself she knows what she's doing and what she wants and she's yeah she's kind of very in touch with the everyday pleasures of life I think um you know she liked good food she liked wine she liked you know going into the forest she liked cuddling her animals and you know it she comes across as a very engaging personality to me I think there she's shown the way forward for anyone sitting for their portrait you should get right of reply (laughs) You get, yes. you get to wait in there and say, no, you've got me wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. And also, as you say, she sounds like, you know, quite an engaging personality, which, I mean, this has nothing to do with anything, but you can't say that about a lot of artists, can you necessarily? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And it's very refreshing to be in the company of someone who's actually, who seems quite cheerful most of the time. So you don't have any of that sort of, you know, torment and anguish that you, like, for instance, at the, the Dorsey, there's a, a Munch exhibition on mm. at the same time I went to see, which is free. Different but five. at the other stream, you know, <laughs> plenty of, you know, torment and anguish. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you don't have <laughs> In terms of her private life, I mean, she yeah. was a celebrity as well, wasn't, wasn't she? She was oh, very yeah. successful, but it, it feels as though she was... A reluctant celebrity she wanted to keep her life her own and have control as you say later over who kind of told her story who wrote her biography and she passed the baton on to Anna Klumpke but it didn't kind of it didn't work out really did it it didn't work out because she died I mean the idea was that Anna Klumpke agreed to commit to living with her in 18 18- 98 and and that was a legal arrangement 
Rosal Bonner got in the lawyers and um, and she made Anna Klumpke her heir, her soul, her soul heir, in preference to, I think, some nephews or nieces or something. And the idea was that over a period of time that she would talk to her about her life and she didn't want, she said to, quite specifically, she wouldn't talk to a man in the same way uh, that she would talk to another woman. And she wanted her to write about her life with Natalie and she wanted it to be a complete picture. And that picture would evolve through their conversations and then it could be put out into the world in a biography. But she died about a year after uh, this arrangement was made. And so Anna Klumpke was left with quite a lot of material that she already had and that she knew, but you don't feel that she's got like the complete picture at all. You know, it just isn't isn't there. And that's a great mm -hmm. shame, really, because I think there's a lot more that could be said about both the private life and about the ways that Rosa Bonheur negotiated her celebrity um, and ensured, ensured the kind of surroundings, way of life that enabled her to go on doing the work that she mm -hmm. did. And you said there's, there's still a lot of material to be sorted through. There's lots of papers and things. You think her story will continue to, to be told? Well, it will. So at Tomery, where um, the Chateau de Rosa Bonheur, uh, this was bought about five or six years ago by some new people who, who have turned it into a museum. And they discovered all sorts of papers in the attic and more drawings and um, pictures. So they are now, they have um, up-to-date facilities in one part of the Chateau where researchers can work on these holdings and the studio where Rosa Bonner worked is presented to us almost as if it hadn't been altered. So it still has all the contents that were there when she died, artfully arranged to look untouched. Uh, and it's lovely, you know, it's lovely to stand there. You, you go inside and you look there and you think, yeah, yeah, this gives me a real sense of what this studio was like. And over the years, when that material is edited and sorted, then I think we will have a bigger picture. Mm -hmm. Well, we look forward to that. Norma, thank you very much for talking to us today. Well, thank you. It's been, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Lucy. Thanks, Michael. Thanks so much, Norma. Thank you. Thank you so much. is all we have time for this week our thanks go to mary beard and norma clark thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by charlotte pardy we'll be back next week but for now from michael keynes and from me goodbye